Um, have you ever um, heard the saying, um, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never harm me? Now, I'm sure my parents would have quoted that at me at some point um, growing up, you know, experiencing bullying as I did. You might have said it to your own kids as a as a, an attempt to encourage resilience in them, to ignore hurtful, spiteful comments. But it's complete rubbish, isn't it? Complete and utter rubbish. Sticks and stones break our bones, yes, but words can be equally hurtful. Conflict deeply affects us. Sticks and stones might well break our bones, but words can, spoken to us, can, the effects of them can last a lifetime, can't they? It cuts deep. And as a teacher, I've lost count of the times that I've had to counsel a child because they've been upset because someone has said something about them. And it's even worse now on social media. But the converse is also true. Have you ever said something about someone that's not kind or untrue or said something to somebody about someone else and we all do it don't we we all do it and we become so desensitized to it that often we're not aware that we're doing it so today we we're going to look at a warning a don't we've been looking at lots of do's be kind be patient, bear one another. Today we're going to look at a don't. Don't speak evil against each other. And to do that, we're going to look at a, um, a passage in the book of James. And in order to fully um, understand what we're reading, we need a window into who this book, this, this letter, James, is written to and for what purpose. Now, the James who wrote it is Jesus' brother, now, at the time of writing, he was the leader in the Jerusalem church. But just thinking, just think, this guy James, he was Jesus' brother. And I find it fascinating to think, what must it have been like for James to grow up as G with Jesus as your brother? Can you imagine you, how frustrated you would be? You're in school, you're trying to learn the Torah, the law, you're trying to learn it, you're finding it hard, and there's Jesus who loves it, who talks about it as though he'd written it, or you do something wrong and your mum Mary comes out with, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus, because he never does anything wrong. It could be, it's frustrating, isn't it? Or it could be if you are uh, James and from the gospel accounts, we can tell that Jesus' brothers, and he had quite a few, we, we believe, weren't among his followers when he was alive. In fact, they tried to dissuade him from his ministry. You can imagine the conversation, can't you? I was just imagining these conversations at the dinner table. Jesus, mate, you're making a fool of yourself. You're gallivanting around the countryside. We need help with dad's carpentry business since he died. You can imagine those chats, can't you? So what happened to change James from being very cynical, 
and trying to dissuade his brother Jesus from his ministry, to leading this church in Jerusalem. And we own, the only thing we know is a one-off comment in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. This is what it says. Jesus appeared to James before the other apostles. What did they talk about? What did they talk about? So by the time he writes his epistle, James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he's writing to Jewish believers who were affected by persecution. They were feeling discouraged by what they were facing. But there also might be some misunderstanding of grace and their responsibility as, as Christians. There's some very famous in words in James, isn't there? You know, faith without works is dead. James is not saying that our good works save us. He's saying that our good works are evidence that our hearts have been changed by the gospel. But we can also tell by the tone of this letter, James, that everything is not well in the relationships between uh, the people in that church or all those Christians. There's a very, very famous passage just before the one we're going to look at today where James talks about the need for Christians to tame their tongue, that the tongue is like a spark that sets a huge forest aflame. So obviously, it's a problem for this group of Jewish Christians. And it's a problem that any church will, will experience at some time or other because people never change. The problem is the same through all the ages. So now we know a little bit of background to the letter, we're going to read from James chapter 4, verse 1 to 12. We're going to look at what the problem was, what the cause was, and what the solution is. So let's have a look at James chapter 4, verse, starting at the first verse. Bear in mind, he's just been talking about controlling the tongue. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. What do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the spirit God has placed within us is filled with envy? But he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but favors the humble. So humble yourself before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. And here's our key verses for today. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job 
is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? So let's firstly look at the problem. Verse 11 and 12, it says, don't speak evil about each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. Now, some uh, translations uh, say don't slander one another. And the Greek word used here is um, katalalos, a bit of Greek this morning, katalalos, which can also mean backbiting and talkative against, which is a lot broader than saying hurtful things to each other, doesn't it? It also means saying things about people when they're not there to hear it. And I don't know about you, but I can often control what I can say to people's faces, but passing judgment when they're not there is a different matter, isn't it? Really different matter. It's all too easy to speak about others because... In James 3, he talks about our tongues being like a tiny rudder or a bit in a horse's mouth. They're tiny, but they have a massive effect on the horse or the uh, ship. What's his point? Because if we're in control of our tongues, then everything works as it should do. I'm sure we've all had the experience of saying something we deeply regret because our tongue has run away with us. We haven't engaged our brain and our heart before the words come tumbling out of our mouth. Then James, in chapter 3, changes his metaphor, and he describes a tongue as this tiny spark that sets a great forest alight. Do you remember a few years ago when um, Saddleworth Moor was on fire? It was completely ablaze because somebody had used a disposable barbecue haven't they? Think, do you remember the amount of effort it took those emergency services to get it under control? The devastation caused, the cost of it, it was millions, wasn't it? And James likens the effect of the tongue to that out-of-control fire, untold consequences. But it's not just in anger that we speak evil about people, is it? As Christians, we sometimes try and get round around our desire to speak against a person by saying that we're concerned about them, when deep down, our motivations are due to our second point this morning, and this is the cause. If you ever look at um, chapter, uh, verse 1, it says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Jesus, uh, James, asks a rhetorical question, a question that he's not expecting an answer because he's going to answer it himself. James asks, answers himself, that what is causing all these, this trouble, these evil desires that are at war within you? We quarrel and we fight and we speak evil against each other because each of us, rates ourselves as number one. 
Each person selfishly wants their own way, putting ourselves in the number one spot. If we're in the number one spot, it doesn't give any room for anyone else, does it? Because we're number one. It's our desires, our opinion, our way of doing things that we feel should take precedence over anyone and everyone else. Right back at the beginning of time, Eve disobeyed God because she wanted to eat of the tree, disregarding God's instruction to her. What she really was saying is, I'm number one. I'm the most important person in my universe. And each one of us have that in us, don't we? Think about the major conflicts that are happening in the world today. Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Putin's desire is that he controls Ukraine. He is number one in his universe, and so he will literally kill to get it. Just watch debates in Parliament. I've been, you know, watching it this week. You know, everybody who's, who's going to take Boris's job. It shows the same thing, doesn't it? Each side will resort to saying all sorts of things about each other to get the upper hand in a debate. Why? Because their opinion, their view, is number one. Now, before we go pointing the finger at politicians. Let's look at our own lives. What causes disagreements and arguments we have? Isn't it a battle of wills? It's just the same, isn't it? Each person assuming that they have the right to the number one spot. Sometimes, though, we can get crafty. And we can desire, like I said before, we can, we can, we can um, disguise our idea to be number one as spirituality. Remember um, in the Old Testament, there's this story about Miriam and uh, Aaron who were Moses' brother and sister in Numbers 12. You can read about it in Numbers 12. They, they were complaining against Moses because they were concerned that he had a, a, a Cushite uh, wife who wasn't a real uh, Israelite. But what was their real motivation? They weren't really concerned about Moses, Numbers chapter 12, verse 2 says, this is what they were thinking. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us too? What they're really saying was, why should our younger brother, Moses, get all the glory? We're just as important. But because people are crafty, they couched it in a spiritual term. And we often, often do that, don't we? You know, I, preparing this, I'm thinking, how often do we do that? Everybody does it. How easy it is to speak evil about someone because we're concerned, but in reality, our, our inner desire is because, we're saying it because we are either jealous or we're proud. How often do the things we fall out about or backbite all boil down to the fact that we think that we are better than someone else? We are number one. We know best. Our opinion is right. Why is it right? Because it's ours. Look at verse, we'll look at verse 11 and 12 again. 
It says, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Now, if you, when you read that, doesn't, don't they remind you of other words that Jesus have said? Luke 6, in, it's in Matthew as well in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Luke 6, 37 says. This is Jesus' words now. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others or it will come back to you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. <laughs> Maybe James really did listen to his oldest brother's preaching when he, when he was sat there. Now, we might agree that judging another person affects that person. But how, doing that, can you be criticizing and judging God's law? If you think about it, what does the law say? Love your neighbor as yourself. So that implies that we're not to judge or trample over them to get our own desires fulfilled. So when we do that, we exempt ourselves from God's law. We say, in effect, that loving your neighbor is good for everyone else, but it doesn't apply to me in this situation. I have special dispensation for it. Now, we don't ever think that, but that is what James is saying. We're ex we think we're excused from its obligations in this instance because we know better than God does. If God knew how much that person had annoyed me, he'd be agreeing with me. That's, in effect, what we're saying. We sit in judgment over it, deciding whether it comes into effect for us. To judge the law means to disobey it. We're in effect saying that some commandments are good and some commandments are bad. Some are worthy of our obedience if we approve of them and we like those bits, but the bits that we don't like, we make ourselves judges of the law by putting ourselves in God's place. We make ourselves Lord and judge. And how we treat each other reflects our view of who God is. If we find that this is a problem for us, then it means we're not truly submitted to God. Because true submission humbles us. It reminds us of who God is and who we're not. But look at the outworking of these selfish desires. Verse 2, it says, You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Now, it's so easy, isn't it, to um, pass over these verses because you think, well, that's not me. I don't want to kill anyone. And as I've, I've struggled with this this week, as you could maybe tell, um, I'm thinking, how, what does this actually mean? And when I wrestled with this passage... I've been reminded of the things that James's brother, Jesus, also spoke on the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew 5, 21. You have heard, this is Jesus speaking, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. 
If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, this is Jesus, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, those are strong words, aren't they? Why? Because Jesus' Jewish listeners knew that the law forbade murder, but it didn't forbid hatred. And Jesus is saying that God just doesn't want our outward obedience, but he wants our heart to be changed. He wants people whose whose motivations are not governed by their selfish desires, but are governed by his grace and mercy. So the passage in James... He's showing us that the key to living authentically as Christians is to think rightly about God. When we speak against each other, it's a sign that God's grace and goodness are not at the forefront of our, of our thinking. It's the grace and goodness of God that spurs us on to speak about each other with the aim of honoring God, not our selfish desires as our motivation. It's a big thing, isn't it? Because it's so ingrained in us, isn't it? Let's have a look at verse 4 and 5. It says, you adulterers. It's a bit strong for a Sunday morning, isn't it? Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. What do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the spirit God has placed within us is filled with envy? James does not pull any punches, does he? Why does he call, you know, these these lovely people adulterers? You know, I don't fancy being called that on a Sunday morning because our selfish hearts are an indication that we have adulterous hearts. We are the object of our own affections and not God. Remember in the Old Testament, God is seen as this faithful husband to Israel when they go chasing after other gods. And here in verse 4 and 5, James uses the same imagery. Look at verse 5 again. It says, if you can find it, what do they say, what do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the spirit God has placed within us is filled with envy? Now, why does it talk about envy? Envy is a bad thing, surely, isn't it? We think, oh, no, we can't, be, we can't be envious. But not in this instance. A husband or wife should want to protect their relationship at all costs and reject anyone or anything that would come between them. They should jealously guard their relationship. And in that sense, jealously guarding your relationship is a good thing. And that's the same sort of jealousy that God has for us. He wants to jealously guard his relationship with us. He wants that closest of relationship with us that we would not want to do anything to strain that relationship or put it at risk. Oh, that I would have a heart that feels about my relationship with God even a tiny bit like he feels about me that we as a body of believers would even a tiny bit 
feel about God like he feels about us. But that is what God, that's what James is saying in this passage. If you are married, do you remember part of your, uh, your wedding vow? This is part of what Bruce asked me to vow to Simon on that faithful day, December 2008. It says, forsaking all others, will you be faithful only to him for as long as you both shall live? Those of us who are married, we have said those words to our um, spouse. But that is the same kind of commitment God is longing for from us forsaking all others will you be faithful only to me for as long as you shall live that is the faithfulness that that is the commitment that God is asking from us it's solemn stuff isn't it and we might be left thinking that this whole issue is either too big a problem to deal with. How on earth can I control my tongue? How on earth can I stop speaking evil to people? You might be thinking, well, you know what? That's just the way I am. Or we might be thinking, well, I'm sorry, but everyone does it, so it can't be such a big deal. Or we might be thinking, depending on our personality, that God is going to be forever annoyed with us because we can't control our tongues. And neither of those, none of those thoughts are correct. So, there is a solution. There is a solution. Let's have a look at verse 6 to 10. It says, But he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. As the scripture says, God opposes the proud but favors the humble. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up in honor. Humble yourself. It's mentioned quite a few times in that passage. Have you noticed that it's not God who humbles us? It's us who humble ourselves. And the NIV, I've read from the NLT, New Living Translation today, but the NIV translates humble yourselves as submit yourselves. Submit yourselves. Dave spoke a few weeks ago, didn't he, about submitting to each other. Submitting to God is yielding to him, recognizing his rightful rule over our lives. It's acknowledging before God that he is number one and not us. Now, that is a big step, isn't it? It's a big step. And it's what a step that we will continually have to do every day of our lives because the heart with the selfish desires always wants to raise its ugly head. It's never, ever going to be a one-off event. Never, ever. Humbling ourselves also enables us to recognize God's grace in helping us control ourselves because we can't do it in our own strength. 
Now, we might think, well, that's all right for, you know, the ultra-godly. You know, Tristan, that's his job to uh, be submitted to God. He's the pastor. But it needs to be the bread and butter of a Christian's life, a continual submit, sub, living, submitting to God all the time, saying, Lord, I can't do this. You're going to have to do this because I can't. It's so easy to say, isn't it? But so hard to do because it's like this, we've got this deep resistance within us trying to our, 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 we want to obey God, we want to submit, but then we've got this pull inside of us that we want our own way too. It's like putting two of the same magnetic poles together. Have you ever had two magnets put together? If you put a north with a north, they want to um, repel each other. And it's the same, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. We feel this force pushing us back as we try to submit to God. We sense the need to change an ungodly desire, but then we, we then have this sense of pulling away. We think, well, you know what? I'll think about it sometime in the future. Or we might think, well... It's not for today. It's not the most important thing in the world. And so-and-so is still doing it, so it can't be that bad. That's why James moves immediately after talking about these evil desires to talking about the devil. He says in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resisting him means to be determined not to be taken in by his lies that whisper to us. The lies that whisper us to us say we deserve to be number one. And what happens when we resist, when we say, no, I know I'm not number one, I know God is number one, James says, the devil, he will flee from you. More than anything else, the devil wants, to betray our lo- wants, wants us to betray our loyalty to God. The highest form of resistance that we can do is to submit all we are to the true number one. The tr- that's, that, that's, that's the highest, that's what the devil hates the most when we say, no, I'm going to submit to God because he is number one, not me. Nothing will cause greater upset to the devil's schemes than our joyful, willing submission to God. What motivation do we have to resist? Because as we resist the devil, verse 8 says, we draw close to God. That says it in verse 8. Now, to be clear, God is always the one who makes the first move in initiating our forgiveness. Always. But as we repent of our desire to be number one and submit to God's rule in our lives, we'll find just as in the, prodigal, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, God is running towards us with arms stretched wide. But as we see in the, in the rest of verse 8, true repentance results in changed action. It involves hands and hearts, actions and attitudes, behavior and mindset. Repentance must always involve 
heart, but hands as well. It must always result in a change of action. So what does this all look like in terms of not speaking evil to each other? And there's some questions I've, uh, I've, I've put my little sheet off, a little worksheet if you want. If you want to take one at the back of church, they're on the, um, the raised bit, I think, if Liz has done a job right. These are some questions that maybe you want to ask yourself, you know, take it home and come before God and ask yourself, am I quick-tempered? Do I lash out in people, uh, lash out in anger at people? How do I respond when someone has hurt me? Do I respond with grace or do I go into revenge mode? Do I forgive others as I want to be forgiven or am I unforgiving and bitter towards people who hurt me? Do I seek God's wisdom before speaking? I wish. Or do I speak without thinking about the consequences of my words? Am I a tail-bearer or a keeper of confidences? Do I know that God is quick to forgive when I confess my sin and ask for his forgiveness? In James 1, verse 19, he says this, You must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. How often am I slow to listen I'm very, very quick to speak. In the battle of the tongue, maybe we should commit to ourselves to either speak less. Simon, are you cheering when I say that? <laughs> we should commit ourselves to speak less or wait to respond. In what way can we more easily weigh our words and the effect that they might have? I read once that the missionary Amy Carmichael had the rule uh, amongst her fellow missionaries that nothing could be said about a person unless they were present in order to preserve the unity of her team. She obviously appreciated the fact that we are a lot more liable to not speak about a person when they are in front of us. Maybe we can commit to trying to do that in our everyday conversation. Seek God's wisdom before responding to a person. But remember, church, this will be a lifelong battle. It's a lifelong battle. It says resist, keep on resisting. Keep on resisting the devil and he will flee from you. So, in this battle, we have to control our tongue. The problem, our tongues can be like a forest fire. A few rash or hurtful words can have enormous consequences. The cause, our desire, everyone's desire to be number one with our agenda, our viewpoint. The solution Get a grip, but not get a grip how we would normally be saying get a grip. Get a grip of how jealous God is of your relationship with him. How he wants to be as close as the uh, husband and wife are 
That's the type of relationship God wants with us, and he will do anything he can to jealously guard that relationship. Guard your vow that you made to the Lord. Let nothing get between us and our relationship with God. Acknowledge he is number one. Repent of our constant desire to be in control, because we do, don't we? We always want to be in control. Seek to resist the devil in order that we can experience the joy of a life submitted to God. Let's pray. Father, these are challenging, challenging words this morning. And we stand before, we sit and stand before you this morning acknowledging that you are number one. And we ask, Lord, that you will so work in our hearts that we will never want anything to um, spoil our relationship with you. Lord, you are totally committed to us and we want to be totally committed to you. Help us, Lord, we pray. Help us in this battle to control our tongues. Help us in this battle of resisting the devil and he will flee from us. Amen.